I invite you to turn with me to your Bibles, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. The passage we are giving our attention to this morning, the focal point of it is verse 20, but the context of that theme of joy, which is our theme this morning, runs from verse 17 to the first part of verse 21. So I'll read for us from verse 17 to 21, though the focal point of our, of our attentive concern this morning is verse 20. So let's pray as we come now to the Bible. Our Father God, thank you that you do grant joy to those who are following you. Help us to understand that, grasp its meaning, and yes, experience joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. So friends, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, and I'll read for us from verse 17 to the first part of verse 21, all on this theme of joy. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Charles Lindbergh was the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic. In 1927, the New York Times headline about this event went like this. Quote, Lindbergh does it to Paris in 33 and a half hours. Flies 1,000 miles through snow and sleet. Cheering French, carry him off the field. End quote. To achieve this then astonishing feat, uh, Charles Lindbergh made various modifications to his plane so that it could keep on going with more fuel. Perhaps the most remarkable of the modifications that Lindbergh made to his plane was that he removed the brakes. Apparently, to his way of thinking, Limbo wasn't going to stop until he got to Paris, so why did he need brakes anyway? Many people live life with the brakes on. Now, of course, if you take the metaphor from a plane to a car, we know that in order for a car to go fast, you need brakes too, otherwise you'll crash pretty quickly. But on the other hand, if you stamp on the brakes while you have your foot on the accelerator, you might get a donut or two, but you won't go very far very fast. Today, we're going to see how to remove our foot from the brakes so that we can experience joy. 
Now, as we do that, we need to make sure we understand what we're talking about. We need to define joy rightly. And definitions are interesting things because a definition isn't merely like a formal statement. That's one way of understanding what a word means. But often a definition is given through the story. And we'll be telling a story and we'll get more of a sense of what joy means as we go through this story this morning. But it's important to start on the right trajectory. A famous definition of contentment comes from the the, uh, renowned Puritan called Jeremiah Burroughs. He defines contentment like this. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every circumstance. Well, that's a good definition of, of contentment, but joy is not quite contentment. Nor is joy merely happiness, the smiley face. We, we have to be careful that we set off the trajectory in the right kind of way because, of course, in our culture, the pursuit of happiness is a highly held value. And yet, and I'll lean on a famous American Christian leader called Billy Graham, the pursuit of happiness is a thoroughly, quote, unbiblical idea. Quote, we are not called by God to a playground, but to a battleground. But even when we think of joy itself, rather than the war, the spiritual war, the progress that we're called to, joy is not found by pursuing joy. Joy is found by the pursuit of an other or the other. It's a byproduct of another pursuit. If you pursue happiness itself, you'll be miserable. It's not how you find real joy. Reminds me of the old joke of the drunkard who rolled out of a bar one evening and was scrambling on his uh, hands and knees beneath a lamppost and someone came up to him and said, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my keys. He was going to drive home drunk. And uh, the man trying to be helpful said, well, where did, you, where did you leave your keys? Where did you last have them? And, and, and the drunk said, well, I left my keys over there. And he said, well, why are you looking for them under the lamppost? And the drunk said, because that's where the light is. A lot of us are like that about joy. We look for it where we've been told to look for it, but it's actually not where it is. It's in the pursuit of another. And that's what we're going to try and understand and experience today. First of all, let's make sure we orientate ourselves to where we are in the Bible. Luke, of course, is one of the Gospels, and it has its own theme. And the theme of Luke is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, and he wants us to have certainty about that. In particular, he wants us to experience salvation, to be saved, and then take that message to all nations. Where we are in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has turned his face to Jerusalem, and Luke constructs that story around a number of themes, and the theme of the section we're in is on mission, hence our series, Your Mission, Should You Choose to Accept It. And we've seen there are a number of questions that we need to answer as we go through that, uh, that, uh, this theme uh, that we're looking at in our series. Will you follow? Will you go? Will you pray? Will you be brave? Uh, Will you hurry? Will you be provided for? What is your message? We looked at that last week. It's critically important we have the right gospel message. We consider that last week. Well, this week, what is your joy? Five brief points. First, your joy is partly now. And it is true that Jesus critiques them for 
putting their joy in the present circumstances. He says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, but rejoice in something else. But he doesn't say that their joy in the now is entirely wrong. He's saying there's a higher joy. And our joy is partly now. It is an understandable experience to have joy and success. They were being very successful and they were exulting in that and rejoicing it and thoroughly understandable. What is more, if we give ourselves to the mission of Jesus that we're encouraging one another to do in this series, there is real impact, real life-changing, world-changing impact to that and it's natural and good to rejoice in that. I was fascinated to listen to a public debate on whether religion is good for the world And Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, was one of the participants in the debate, and he was arguing that religion was good for the world, and he came up with this statistic. Apparently, in Africa, one half of all the healthcare in that huge continent in Africa, one half of it is fueled by religious organizations, and I think we can say predominantly Christian ones. It has a real impact. Of course that's a good thing. Of course it's good to exult in it and to have joy in it. But it isn't the ultimate thing. There is spiritual authority that we have from Jesus to have an impact, but we're not to be authoritarian. That's to put that in the primary place. And we're warned about that in the Bible, aren't we? First Peter 5 tells the Christian leaders in the church not to lord it over others, not to be Pharisees dominating people. And that's a wrongly ordered joy, joy in the ministry, not joy in Jesus. But having said that, it is partly now as we follow Jesus. There is real joy in following him. According to the Turing Institute research from 2019, the happiest era in the Western world was in the 1880s when the Christian values were predominant. Whereas, according to the 2009 Penn Gazette, what they called a paradox of declining happiness while increasing wealth. Well, it's no paradox for those of us who believe in Jesus because joy comes from an ultimate joy. It's not the pursuit of happiness. So there is partly a joy now, but it needs to be a rightly ordered joy. Second, your joy is commanded. What a head-scratcher. Who would have think that? For us, joy is a feeling, but Jesus commands joy. He says, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice in the other. And both those statements are on what is known as the imperative, that is, they are commands. Jesus is commanding joy. He wants us to actively reject merely rejoicing in spiritual success, and he wants us actively to pursue the path of joy in the other, in another, in him himself. What that means is the way to achieve joy is not to focus on our feelings. It's a command. I was fascinating to, fascinated to discover the other day that apparently in some high schools, it's becoming quite common, every morning for the high school teacher, first class in the morning, to perform an emotional well-being check-in. Well, I wonder how that goes. There you are, 7.30 in the morning, and your first class is mathematics. How do you feel? Not good. What is more, the focus on the negative creates unhappiness. 
What is even worse, I think, I think we could almost say malevolent about that approach, is that the focus on the self generates the unhappiness of narcissists, and there's no, no one more unhappy than a narcissist. It's the self-esteem nightmare. So in many of her books, a psychologist called Jean Twenge has outlined this. It's a spiraling decay of focusing on the self, thinking that's what will achieve happiness, but it will not. We need to actively turn our attention to this joy, the joy in the other, not in me, if we're going to experience joy. How different is our contemporary culture motif? Miley Cyrus, in her 2023 hit, Flowers, has a line in it where she says, I love me better than you can. But that's all about, it's, it's so centered on the, on the self. Now, by saying that joy is commanded, we're not saying, and Jesus is not saying, you've got to fake it till you make it. He's not saying that sad feelings are not allowed. But it is a command to pursue the path of joy. And if you are in Christ, you can walk that way. Take a step, like the Chinese proverb, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Take a step on that path of joy. And don't be focused on your own feelings. Otherwise, you'll, well, to quote Oscar Wilde, some people spread happiness wherever Wherever they go, other people spread happiness whenever they go. Don't be like that. Third, your joy is victorious. Of course, this is the most interesting part of this for modern years. Jesus is quite clear here that there is a demonic reality. And he tells them that they have victory over it. Your, the spirits are subject to you. We cannot ignore that demonic Reality, thinking that in our modern worldview we're somehow more sophisticated than Jesus was. In the same way that last week we looked at healing and our discussion there that we nuance, we cannot ignore that Jesus was a healer, nor can we ignore that Jesus and his followers cast out demons. They did. He did. He says here, I saw Satan fall like lightning, verse 18. What does he mean? The reference is to a verse in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verse 12, which in the original context was referring to the fall of Babylon. Jesus here takes it up to be uh, referring ultimately to Satan falling like lightning. Satan is a Hebrew word which means adversary. Another common word for Satan is devil. Devil originally is a Greek word, which means accuser. So Satan, or the devil, is our adversary, that he's the enemy, who accuses. That's really good to know, because if you're a Christian, the predominant mode of the devil will be to oppose you by accusing you of guilt. His task, so often, is to try to get Christians to feel guilty and non-Christians to feel fine. He's the accuser, the adversary. But what does it mean when Jesus says, I saw Satan or the devil fall like lightning? There are a couple of different interpretive options here, and I find it very hard to choose between them. One option is that Jesus is referring to the original casting of Satan out from heaven. And if that's what he's referring to, the application is to pride. 
Don't get prideful about your spiritual success. The Bible has lots about that, of course. Uh, most uh, uh, pertinently, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul warns that spiritual leaders are not to be prideful. That could be what Jesus is saying here. Or it could be, the other interpretive option, is that Jesus is talking about the victory that comes through the preaching of the gospel or the proclamation of the gospel or witnessing to the gospel because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his victory over the devil. And if that's the case, then the application is not so much to pride but to be confident. And, of course, there's lots in the Bible about that too. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 tells us that those who follow Jesus conquer, they're victorious, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They can be confident. We will be victorious, even over the demonic. It's a very hard decision to uh, land which of these is the right interpretation, particularly because great Christian leaders have differed on it. J.C. Ryle, great Christian leader, uh, opted for the first option, that it's about the, fall, the original fall of uh, casting out of Satan from heaven, and therefore applies to our pride. This is what he said, quote, This interpretation appears to me to be by far the more satisfactory of the two. And then he quotes from, he refers to various great other Christian leaders who agreed with him, apparently Cyprian, Ambrose, Chrysostom, Jerome, and the, the great Puritan uh, preachers, Doddridge and Gill. But then on the other hand, another great commentator called Matthew Henry took the other option. Matthew Henry said this, quote, Satan and his kingdom fell before the preaching of the gospel. Christ foresaw that the preaching of the gospel, which would fly like lightning around the world, would, where it went, pull down Satan's kingdom. That's the other interpretation. Matthew Henry admits that uh, the first interpretation is also possible. Another recent commentator called Garrett, in a book she wrote in, I think, recent-ish, she wrote called The Demise of the Devil, emphasized that Jesus, when it says that he, I saw, it's the imperfect tense, I was seeing, and therefore lands on the ongoing preaching of the gospel, the interpretation of Matthew Henry. You may accuse me of failing to make a decision or prevaricating, in my view, the likelihood is Jesus has in mind both. He's warning them against their pride, nevertheless, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice in this. But at the same time, he's also affirming their confidence. And in any case, this is a great section to remember, isn't it? To memorize. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. You Christian, you followers of mine, you have that authority. Do not quake. Do not fear. Have confidence. Now, my friends, the devil is real. Not a medieval caricature, but the real devil is real. I remember when I was on the mission field going to an Islamic training school. We were allowed in to see uh, what had been going on there. And I remember the experience of walking into that Islamic training school and never in my life have I felt such an obvious, palpable sense of evil. Quite extraordinary. I will never forget it. But it isn't always so obvious. I remember another time in a church I, I, I led for a number of years there, we had a homeless ministry. 
And I remember sharing that with a friend, uh, another Christian leader, not a friend of mine, but someone I knew, a Christian leader, sharing with him that every Sunday we had homeless people in the church. And he was shocked. He said to me, how can you have homeless people in your church bringing all those people who are demon-possessed into your church? And I thought, that's a funny view of homelessness. But I didn't say much. And thereafter, I found that actually that other Christian leader was himself struggling with real demonic aspects in his life. And yet he looked so perfect can be subtle. And there is demonic today, of course. As we look around our culture and we look at some of the very obviously strange, wrong, damaging ideas that are influencing our children, it's hard to understand it unless at some level you think there is a demonic work. That isn't to look at the devil, to see a demon under every issue, but it is to say that the demonic is real, and to say, while fools rush in where angels fear to tread, the emissaries of Jesus trample on snakes and scorpions through the witness to the gospel. And that itself, the snakes and scorpions, has a reference to an Old Testament passage, Psalm 91. Fourth, your joy is fully then. Your names are written in heaven. There is, Jesus says, yet a far greater reality. How amazing that is. Christian, if you're following Jesus, your name is written in heaven. Not with, uh, with imperishable ink. Not in pencil. It's written in heaven. Which means something like permanent, unshakable, eternal destiny. However healthy we try to be in our life, in this world, we will, of course, at some point face death. What then could be a greater cause of rejoicing than that our names are written in heaven? If you put your faith in Jesus this morning, your name is written in heaven. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, your name is written in heaven. And that means we need to adjust our, our, our temporary definition at the beginning of the message where we said that joy is, is vitality of life. Yes, joy is the vitality of life, but not simply the vitality of this life. Joy is the vitality of life that goes forever. What a, what a reason to rejoice. Your life matters. Your life has an eternal purpose. Your name, George, Bill, David, Sally, Sarah, your name is written in heaven, fixed, unshakable. A great confession of faith called the Belgic Confession puts it like this, quote, for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause believers to possess such glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Wow. Fifth, finally, your joy is in the Holy Spirit. As uh, Luke records for us the rejoicing of Jesus, he deliberately tells us, verse 21, that he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This joy, of which we are giving our attention this morning, is spiritually fueled. It is not a joy that comes through a psychological shift merely, nor a joy that comes through a circumstantial shift, nor a joy that comes through our physical well-being. 
This joy is spiritually fueled. It's in the Holy Spirit, and therefore we can have joy irrespective of our psychological, physical, or circumstantial aspects of our lives. It's in the Holy Spirit. Spiritually fueled by the personal presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Personal presence because the Holy Spirit is a person. It's joy in God himself. Joy is in a person, not just a location or a destiny. Heaven itself is knowing God. John chapter 17 verse verse 3. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's heaven, knowing him. And therefore, because joy is in the Holy Spirit, the mark of a spirit-filled person and the mark of a spirit-filled church is joy. This irrespective of circumstances. Now, we have to make sure we don't misunderstand this too. To say that the Holy Spirit is required such emphasis that Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit to emphasize the ministry of the Holy Spirit does not mean in any way to downplay the importance of the Bible. So often you find that in circles where the Holy Spirit is emphasized, therefore less Bible. But that's a crazy thinking. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 17, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. When Pentecost came, what happened? They listened to the apostles' teaching. They listened to the Bible. The Word and the Spirit are as connected as breath. The Spirit of God is God's breath to Word, intimately connected. I sometimes think that when people emphasize the Holy Spirit and try thereby to say we need less Bible, they're so wrong-headed, it's almost as if they're making a typo. I can't imagine how they could do it. Reminds me of the old joke of a priest, a pastor, and a rabbi, but this time not a rabbi, a rabbit going into a blood donation clinic. The nurse asked the rabbit, what's your blood type? And the rabbit replied, I guess I'm probably a typo. Should have been a rabbi. It's what they call a dad joke, I think. Now let's get it clear. More Holy Spirit means more Bible. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Less Bible, less Holy Spirit. But it is joy in the Spirit. Well then, what is your joy? Your joy is partly now, is commanded, is victorious, is fully then, and is in the Holy Spirit. Now, by saying all this, we're not saying merely let's accentuate the positive. We're not merely saying that. A teen was struggling with history and felt sure that he would fail the next day's test. When his dad got home and heard all that negative self-talk, he encouraged his son to be more positive. Son, you've got to be more positive, he said. The teen quickly replied, okay, I'm positive I'm going to fail tomorrow. I'm not saying merely be more positive. Nor are we saying that life is always full of roses. Life can be challenging. I have my challenges. You have your challenges. Of course. And if life is full of roses, uh, there are thorns that come with the roses. Fred and Mildred had been married for many years, but occasionally had arguments. And after one heated debate... 
They sat down at the end to finally talk calmly with one another over a freshly brewed special cup of pour-over coffee. After a while, Mildred said, You give me joy. To which Fred replied, Is that you talking or the coffee? And Mildred replied, It's me talking to the coffee. But we want joy, don't we? We seek it. According to USA Today in 2019, the most popular emoji was the face with tears of joy. We long for joy. And following Jesus on his mission in the Holy Spirit, we may have that vitality of life now and forever. There's been a fashion in Christian circles in recent years to emphasize laments. And certainly there is lament in the Bible, but lament is not the predominant note of Christianity. The predominant note of Christianity is joy. And so, friends, let's go on mission for Jesus and thereby find joy. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we know that in this world we do face challenges. We know also that there is a real devil and Satan, our accuser, the enemy. But we know also, Lord, that you have given us spiritual authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. We thank you, Lord, that in following you, you offer us joy. And we pray this morning, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, You would move among us, break down barriers, cast out demons, cause sinners to repent, open our eyes to who you are, and cause us to rejoice. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.